Happy Easter, GBC. Man, uh, I'm, I'm so glad uh, that we get to have this time together, uh, but I would be lying if I said this is what I dreamt up my first Easter with you looking like. So um, that, would, that was never in my dreams, uh, but this is what the Lord has for us right now, and I'm just so thankful um, that you and I, even though we're celebrating Easter much differently today, uh, that we still have the hope that has been offered to us through the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus died for our sin on Good Friday, but he got up from death and walked out of the grave on Sunday, and he never went back into the grave again, and he lives. And because he lives, you and I have this unwavering hope that carries us through any season that we ever walk through. And for us to celebrate this morning, I thought it'd be really um, helpful if we looked at Philippians chapter 2, uh, looking at verses 5 through 11. This is uh, one of the most famous um, hymns of the first century church. Uh, this, this is a, called the Carmen Christi hymn. Uh, and this is really a, a hymn that if it even existed back then, if, if Christian music even existed in the first century, this would be like top of the charts kind of idea. Uh, really an incredible passage that I want to read with you right now, beginning in verse 5. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's just pray together. Father, we come before you this morning rejoicing in the hope that we have in your son Jesus. We are so thankful for your extravagant grace that you would send him to die in our place and to rise on our behalf. And we pray this morning that as we look at your word, God, that you would speak so clearly to each one of us, that you would minister to our hearts, that you would encourage us, Lord, during this time. Uh, we love you, Lord, and we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to ask you, when you think of Easter, what thoughts, what words come to your mind? When you think of Easter, what, what comes to your mind? Maybe you're thinking of words like hope, uh, salvation, uh, victory. Uh, when we come to a passage like this, um, Paul, the author of Philippians, wants us to think about humility. When we think about the resurrection, he wants us to think about humility. And what we see this morning is that the resurrection creates humble people. Uh, Easter should cause followers of Jesus, so if you're a follower of Jesus, it should cause us to be the most humble people in our spheres of influence, to be the most humble people on the face of the planet. And this is what we see here this morning in our passage. This is sort of the structure. In verses 5 through 8, we see the path to resurrection, and that path is a path of humility. In verses 9 through 11, we then see what the resurrection means for Jesus, what it means for the world, and what it means for you and me. So let's look at this together. First, the path to resurrection. Look in verses 5 through 8. 
So Paul, it's important that we know this, Paul is writing to a church in a Greek city called Philippi. These people that he's writing to are Christians, okay? They're, they're Christians. They've, they've believed that Jesus died and rose on their behalf. And Paul's appealing to them now as resurrected people and commands them in verse 5 to have a certain mind, to have a certain mindset. And it's the mind that Jesus has, and apparently it is available to you, to Christians. He doesn't say that you should have this mind, but you don't have it, and maybe one day you can get a hold of it if you're lucky. He says it's yours in Christ Jesus. The most literal reading of this verse would actually say, Think this in you, which Christ thought in him. What are we commanded to think? What are we commanded to think? We are to believe that going down truly is the way to go up. That humility is truly the path of resurrected living. Uh, Don't be mistaken. Uh, No one in the world, not you, not me, no anybody, could repeat what Jesus did because we did not start where he started at all. We will not suffer the way that he suffered, and we cannot be exalted to the position that he occupies. This is, this is not the point that you do exactly as Jesus did. The point is that we see the humility of Jesus, and we realize that any amount of humility that we exhibit is kind of just like a petal on a single flower in an endless field of flowers that is the humility of Jesus. Our our humility will never compare to His, but it should reflect His. What, What was this mind that He had? What was the path that Jesus took to Easter Sunday? In verse 6, we see Jesus' attitude that He had, and in verses 7 through 8, we see Jesus' actions. His attitude, you're going to notice here, led to his actions. He had a mindset and actions followed his mindset. Our actions flow from our mind, right? What was Jesus' attitude along his path to resurrection? We see it in verse 6. It says, he was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Our, Our English translation says that Jesus was in the form of God. This doesn't mean that Jesus merely looked like God, but wasn't really God. That's not what this word means. The word form means an outward appearance that is expressing something that is inwardly true. The form perfectly expresses the inward reality. Um, My second favorite holiday of the year is Major League Baseball's opening day, okay? So I'm I'm grieving right now the fact that baseball season is not being played out. Um, But every day on opening day, uh, I'm a diehard San Francisco Giants fan. I bleed black and orange, you could say. So every opening day, uh, I'm used to getting my old dingy Giants hat on and my old dingy J.T. Snow Giants t-shirt on. And you could say, when I'm wearing that, that gear, you could say that I'm in the form of a Giants fan, that I look like a Giants fan. Right? But that form is honestly just expressing what's inwardly true, isn't it? Right? It doesn't make me more of a fan. It's just kind of revealing that I am a fan. And even if I wasn't wearing that gear, I would still be a Giants fan, okay? Through thick and thin, right? I, I can't help it, okay? In, in a similar way, Jesus was in the form of God. He was always the eternal Son of God, and He still is. But it then says that he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. See, Jesus possesses equality 
with God the Father. Always has, always will. So Jesus had nothing to grasp for. He already had it. So really his equality with God was something that he released from his grasp. That's what this is saying. This phrase literally means that Christ did not think of his equality as something to use for his own advantage. That he didn't think of his equality as something to use for his own advantage. Instead, he chose to use it for your advantage. He used his position for your advantage. Isn't that amazing? Right? These statements about Jesus directly contrast the first man that the Bible ever speaks of. Just think about that man, Adam. Right? While Adam was in the Garden of Eden, he didn't have equality with God. He was made in the image of God to reflect the character of God. Right? That, that's, was, that was his reality, but Adam wasn't content with his position. Right? Even though he didn't share equality with God, Adam grasped for it. He tried to clutch it, to, to white-knuckle grip it. In his temptation, he wanted to be like God. He wanted to be like God. And in turn, he sinned, and through his act, sin and the results of sin, the curses of sin, have entered into our world. But here, Jesus has equality with God, and yet his mindset, his mindset, his attitude is to let go of that grasp that is rightfully his. This is a direct contrast to Adam, who didn't have that equality, yet he was grabbing for it. You see that? This is the attitude of Jesus that put him on the path to resurrection. What were his actions that flowed from his mindset? Well, we see that in verses 7 through 8. We're told in verse 7 that he emptied himself. Well, does that mean that he ceased to be God? Well, we gain understanding of what this means from clues in our passage. Just look at some of the contrast in our passage. Jesus is called Lord in verse 11, but he's called servant in verse 7. That's a contrast. He's said he's in the form of God, verse 6, but he's also in human likeness, verse 7. That's a contrast. This is showing us the meaning of what it means that Jesus emptied himself. Jesus' emptying is that God became human. The Lord became a servant, and obedience drove him to death. Jesus emptied himself, not in leaving behind his deity, but in adding and taking on humanity. And if that isn't humbling enough, we are told that he wasn't just human, okay? He took the lowest position amongst us. Right, we see in verse 7 that he took the lowest position before he even took on that flesh. Right? It says he took the form of a servant. So in other words, his servanthood preceded his humanity. Well, what is the pathway that Jesus took to resurrection? It's incredible humility, but it doesn't stop there. No, not even close. His humility climaxes in what we remembered about his life on Good Friday. It climaxes in ultimate humiliation. He was humiliated on the cross. He was brutally nailed to the cross. I'll never forget, just a year or two ago, uh, my oldest son, Tucker, asked, why did they have to nail Jesus to the cross? And, and my older daughter replied saying, yeah, they could have just taped him. And uh, I sat there thinking, oh, that's, that's sweet. You know what I mean? And, and imagining that if Jesus had just been taped to the cross, what would that have actually have meant? Well, it would have maybe been a sign of embarrassment. It would have been a sign of humiliation. But no, he wasn't just embarrassed. He wasn't just humiliated in that way. 
He experienced true death. His humility drove him all the way to a humiliating death. I mean, true death, like his heart stopped beating. He stopped breathing. His body became cold, that kind of death. See, the Lord of the universe, the one who was in the form of God from before the beginning of time, willingly died on a cross for the sins of the world. I love a Fernando Ortega song, one of my favorites, it's called Sing to Jesus. And the opening line of the song says, Come and see, look on this mystery. The Lord of the universe is nailed to a tree. Just think about the dramatic distance that Jesus traveled from being in the form of God to death on a cross. That dramatically reveals the humility that he has, that he has. You see, it's interesting because humility to us, is, it's kind of a, a nice word. It warms our hearts. It sounds compelling. You know, I mean, who doesn't want to be a humble person? If I asked you, do you want to be a humble person? You're like, yeah, of course. I mean, no one's going to say they don't want to be a humble person. But basically, what's interesting is that anybody who lived before the New Testament era, in Jesus' day then, the word humility was really only used to ever describe the mentality of a slave. It conveyed the ideas of being the lowest of the low, of being really insignificant or really unimportant. It communicated that you were less than. So during this time in history, the idea of humility was not regarded by anybody in the world as a virtue that you would want. Yet Jesus embraced it. Jesus didn't cling to his position. He didn't try to grab for even a higher position, but he chose the lowest position and he used his position to benefit you benefit you. Okay, so how do we have this mind of Christ that's in Christ Jesus? It seems to be available to us here. So how do we, how do we obtain that? How do, we, how do we live with this sort of mindset? If you're anything like me, I mean, the longer that I stare at the beauty of Jesus' humility, my pride becomes clearer, becomes uglier. It becomes way more defined. Just staring at that contrast. I grew up always wearing those like Hanes white undershirts and I would wear them for years and then my mother once in a while every year or two would go to the store and buy me a new package of those freshly bleached, you know, cotton t-shirts and bring them home and and I would lay it after the first load of laundry next to my existing white t-shirts and I would quickly realize that that shirt that I've been calling white for so long when I laid it next to the brand new one, it looked really yellow. You know, and so I was like, I can't even wear this anymore after I saw the contrast to the new fresh white t-shirt. I'm thinking, I mean, if, that, if that's an indication of our lives to a degree, when we stare at the humility of Jesus, it's like, how can that, that yellow shirt become the white shirt? How is that even possible? Well, well, we begin by stopping. We begin by stopping. We let go. We, we stop grabbing for a position of wanting to be God, and we do the opposite of what Adam did, And you and I, on a day like today, we humble ourselves before God. And we come to a place where we admit that we are not God. That we are not God. We are not the center of the world. See, this is where humility gets really hard. It's where it doesn't feel warm fuzzy anymore. Because we are born with this Adam syndrome. I mean, I I see it in my kids even. We have this, um, this family photo in our house that was taken years ago when, when my son Gus was just a baby. Um, and in this photo, you'll see me and Elizabeth 
and uh, Tucker and Eden and Gus. So Isla, my, my fourth born, she did not exist. But often, recently, she'll go into that room and she'll look at that photo and she'll point to Eden and say, that's her. And we try to explain to her, sorry, Isla, you were not born yet. You did, you did not exist in this photo. And she gets really angry and she yells at us and she goes, yes, I am. And she, she believes that she is Eden and to the extent that she actually says that Eden was in her mommy's tummy, that she now is the firstborn somehow. Like it's, it's insanity, basically. She cannot imagine a time where she did not exist. I mean, even the other day, I was reading a Bible story to the kids, and I asked them a question. I just asked them, what is your favorite thing that God has made? And each kid said different things, like the stars, the mountains, uh, my friends, or whatever it is. And we got to Isla, and she shouted, me. My favorite thing that God has made is me. And we laugh at her, and we're like, oh, that's kind of cute, and that's funny for her to have that sort of mindset. But that mindset... It doesn't age very well, does it? And I see that mindset in me too. So the only way that we grow out of this Adam complex and into a Jesus mindset is through the reality of the resurrection. In other words, Easter, you guys, makes us the most humble people on the planet. How can that be? Well, it's by seeing that second thing, what the resurrection means for Jesus and what it means for the world, and what it means for you. That's what we see in verses 9 through 11. Let's just read that again together, beginning in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, this is a Christian, one of the first Christian hymns, right? It's, it's obvious to see right here that the tone changes. It's almost like the beat picks up or something here. And as the tone even changes, the emphasis or the main character shifts to God the Father and not to Jesus. I don't know if you noticed that. There's two statements here in verse 9 that are showing God the Father's actions. First, he exalted Jesus to the highest place. And secondly, it says he gave Jesus the name that is above every name. Do you notice that? That God the Father exalted Jesus. Jesus didn't exalt himself. If you believe that Jesus died on Good Friday over two millennia ago, triumphantly walked out of the grave and never went back into that grave ever again, you might ask yourself the question, how did he do that? How did Jesus do that? Well, God did it. God did it. That's what it's telling you. But he didn't just bring Jesus back from the dead. We are told here, in one felt swoop, we are told this idea that God has highly exalted him. The, the phrase highly exalted him can be translated exalted to the highest place. It literally means God super exalted him. What does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus got a promotion, that he was, he was kind of God, but now he's like really, really God? Is that what this is meaning? Well, not at all. Because of Jesus' obedience, he's been exalted to a position, that's what this is saying, where now the whole world relates to and knows God through Jesus. So, so what does Easter mean for Jesus? Maybe you've never asked that question before. We're always concerned with what does Easter mean for me, but what does Easter mean for Jesus? Here we see that through Easter Sunday, because of the empty tomb, Jesus has been given the highest name 
meaning he is the most important person. He's the most significant person. No one rivals him. He's been given the highest position. He is king, but not amongst other rival kings. He isn't just king over Christians. He's king over all. So there are two things that are happening in the world right now, or or will one day happen to everyone. That's what we see here next, that this is what the resurrection means for the world in you. Because of what the resurrection means for Jesus, we see what the resurrection means for us. We're told in verse 10, every knee will bow. And also in verse 10, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love the way Paul describes just the the universal implication of whose knees will bow. I mean, he's using categories that Greek people would understand. He says, every knee should bow. Every knee will bow, is what that means, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He's basically saying, just take, just take whatever God you worship, whatever seems important, whatever seems powerful to you right now, things that you worship, whether it's angels or deities or dead people or whatever idol has captured your heart this week, whatever it is, take your pick. One day, it will bow the knee to Jesus. Just just think about this. Just think about the the act of, of kneeling. I mean, kneeling is almost done as a sign of respect, isn't it? Like we once kneeled before kings and queens and at altars, and now we, we maybe kneel if you're, if you're a man proposing to a woman, and, and even that is debatable these days, or, or maybe we kneel to get down onto a child's level and to be approachable or, or something. Or maybe if we're in a really desperate place, we might kneel to beg. In verse 10, it is the same, but more so. Because kneeling here is not just a sign of mere respect for Jesus. This is a sign, a physical demonstration of submission and acknowledgement of His rightful reign and rule over our lives. But we don't see kneeling here, just kneeling. We also see confessing. And what is a confession? Well, a confession is something that you make, that you say, and it shows agreement with another party. It shows that you're agreeing with somebody else about something. So if I, if I wrong you and I confess to you what I've done wrong, I'm actually agreeing with you that, yeah, I, I agree with you what I did was wrong. Okay? That's, a, that's a confession. Okay? If I confess that Jesus is Lord, I'm agreeing with God the Father that Jesus is my rightful King. That's what I'm doing. This is what this means. One day, you guys, every knee will bow to Jesus and everyone will confess Him as Lord. And so we can either start bowing, we can start kneeling and confessing now, or one day we will be humbled, and every single one of us will assume our rightful place on our knees. Guys, Jesus isn't just any king. He's not an arrogant tyrant who's looking to abuse and use you for his own benefit. He's the humble king. He's used his position, you guys, to benefit you. And what kind of king does that? That, That's what we must see here, that our bowing and our confessing, it's not an invitation to miserable surrender. It's a path to true joy. It's a path to true resurrected sort of living. This is the future, you guys, and it's coming. And this future is, is meant to invade your present reality. 
we, we know this in a lot of different ways in our lives, that the future often is intended to invade our present. And if we don't let it invade our present, we are really humbled when that future arrives. I mean, maybe you're a student and you know that there's a huge test coming up, so you better study for that test. But let's just say you were kind of like me and you never studied. The test day comes up and you have to take the test. And what happens? You didn't live like the future was coming. You didn't let it invade the present, and so you're, you're humbled, right? Or maybe uh, it's, you know your anniversary is coming up and you don't really give it any thought and the day arrives, you wake up and you haven't even thought about how you can plan a date or show your spouse how you love them and how you care for them. And what happens? You're, you're pretty humbled, right? Or if you're going to go run a marathon, I don't know why you would do that, but let's just say you're going to go run a marathon and you've never ran before. You don't even start training now. When that day comes, you're going to be humbled. Maybe you'll die. I don't know. I would probably. But Here's the thing, if you don't humble yourself and bow your knee to Jesus now, I'm not sure where you're at this morning, but Easter Sunday is a day where we are invited to start rehearsing for the ultimate day when Jesus' Lordship will be known fully by all. Easter is an invitation to let the future invade your present. I mean, Luke chapter 14, 11 says this very thing. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He's talking about in this life. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. The verbs there are passive, meaning that how you view Jesus in this life will determine what God will do to you when you see him face to face one day. You'll either be exalted or you'll be humbled. Guys, this is where the path of life is actually leading you. This is the destination at the end of the trail where our knees are bowed. I mean, just think about it. If you ever hike, you know that, that when you take a path, that that trail is going to lead you somewhere. So let's just say we are going to go on a hike to Multnomah Falls. You start out on that path. First of all, you're not going to expect palm trees and monkeys swinging all over the place. Right? You, you know uh, the environment that you're in, but you also know that when you get to the top, you're going to find a waterfall. You're not telling yourself on the way up, like, oh, maybe I'll see Buckingham Palace, or, or maybe Disneyland will be up there when I get there. Right? Maybe it'll be open now or something like that. You would never tell yourself. Maybe that's a, a motivator for you. I don't really know. Right? But you're not going to think that way. Right? Why? Right? Why? Because you know where the destination is. You know what's, what's there. In the same way, the path of life, we must realize that that path leads to a place where we end up on our knees. Because the view at the top is beholding the resurrected, humble king. So, so how do we have this mind of Jesus? We can have this mind as we see the example of Jesus. Yes, what a powerful example. But really, we, we become humble people. We have this mind when we experience his humble rule. Right? We are called to this mindset. It's commanded, and we can only have this mind as we see Jesus and experience him for who he truly is. Do you see, guys? The resurrection creates the most humble people because it's really, really hard to be proud when you're on your knees. I mean, it's nearly impossible to be proud when you're on your knees. I mean, just try it. I mean, next time you get in a fight with your roommate or your spouse this week, maybe this, I don't know when you're going to do that, but 
I, I dare you, just try it. Get on your knee when you're, when you're upset, right? See how it goes. You know, it'll be hard, right? Because if you're really upset, you're going to want to stand up and, and puff yourself up and all that kind of idea, right? Or if you're really brave, you know, just get down on a knee. See how it goes. I mean, just try to feel cool. Try to feel awesome when you're on your knee. You could even pause this video right now and try it. Let's just see how it goes, right? Like we know when you're on your knees, that's a place of humility. See, following Jesus is a path of humility. And so just to put it bluntly, if we say we follow Jesus and, and we aren't walking in humility, we actually need to give a little gut check to ourselves and ask if Jesus is really who we're following. As we come to the empty tomb of Jesus this morning with the eyes of our heart and we find a humble king and that humble king is calling us into a humble life where the way down is the way up, it's very counterintuitive to how we've been trained in this world. Um, I read an article about a, about a man named Ronald Pinkerton who was a pilot and one day he went out hang gliding and he launched his hang glider and he was soaring at 4,200 feet. I don't know why you would ever do that, but he was doing that. And um, as he was descending to, to finish his enjoyable time above the earth, uh, he was hit with an airborne riptide, and it was just sending him plummeting at extremely fast speeds towards the earth, and he couldn't get out of it, right? He, he thought for sure, this is it for me. I'm going to crash. I'm going to die. And in that moment, he saw off of his right wing tip, he saw a red-tailed hawk who was fighting that same airborne riptide. And when they're only a few hundred feet from hitting the earth, he, he looked at the hawk, and the hawk, instead of trying to go up, trying to fight the, the current, he began to just focus and go plummet him, his own self. He barreled straight downwind instead of trying to fight the gust. And this guy thought to himself immediately, like, this bird is committing suicide. Like, why would you ever do something like that? But he all of a sudden had the thought enter his mind, and the thought was, follow the hawk. Follow the hawk. It went against every single thing that he had ever known about flying, but right then, all of his knowledge was useless, wasn't it? He was at the mercy of the wind, and so he followed the hawk. And so at about 100 feet, suddenly, the hawk began to gain altitude. Began to gain altitude. And he said all of a sudden, he seemed to be suspended himself motionless in space. This, this warm burst of air pushed his hang glider upwards, and he was stunned. He said that in all of his training as a pilot, there wasn't anything that he could think of to explain what just happened to him, but it was true. He was rising. I think that story of Ronald honestly illustrates pretty well what Philippians 2 is saying to us. We, we really don't believe that the way up is the way down that we must humble ourselves if one day we will truly be exalted, that that resurrected living is actually a life of humility. Jesus is the hawk, right? You, you look at the path he took to resurrection, and although it wars against every single thing that you've been trained in how to live in this world, it's my hope, though, that we hear the voice of Jesus this morning. We hear a voice that essentially says, follow the hawk. It says, follow Jesus. It says, follow me. Guys, you know we've, we've been walking through the servant songs of Isaiah leading up to this time of Easter during this whole season of, of social distancing. 
and for all of us, I mean, we've been sitting in this in, in incredible humility that we've seen in the servant that Isaiah talked about, the servant that we see here. And as we've been doing that, we've experienced many things in our lives that we thought were really stable, right? That, that, we've, that have proven to actually be very unstable. We've, learned, we've leaned so much in our life before on our proficiency or our ability, and now we have encountered, many of us, our shortcomings and our insufficiencies. A lot of things that we've put our hopes in have had, the, have had holes poked in them. Our, our needs are maybe being more exposed. You could say this is a very humbling season for all of us, a season where we more acutely feel, maybe I'm not God. I am not God. Right, but, but let me ask you, what are your hopes once this season's over? Many of us might think, well, man, we were all forced to go down, but I'm excited to get back up, you know? Become stronger and more self-sufficient. This won't ever happen again. The way up is the way up. But this isn't the mind of Jesus. He was in the highest position, but he willingly took the lowest position. People were afraid of losing their influential position to Jesus as a new, otherworldly kind of king. So he was brought down to the lowest of low on Good Friday. But willingly he went low so that he could raise you up. And now the resurrected Jesus doesn't just raise you up, so that we can bring others down, he raises us up so that we can raise others up. Right? Now is the time for the church of Jesus to shine in humility, in caring way more about others than we do about ourselves. Not just thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. This is the reality of the resurrection. Do you see? I mean, we, we are people who aren't merely inspired by Jesus. We are people who now walk through life on our knees. That's who we are. Gazing at our beautiful, humble Savior King, who's used his position to graciously benefit us for all eternity. Father, this morning, uh, we're so thankful And we're amazed, honestly, at the humility that you have and that you've exhibited on our behalf, Lord Jesus. I mean, it would do us good just to sit and meditate on your actions for us for just days on end. Lord, and and when we do that, we are in awe of your humility. We're astounded, God, that you would not only be mindful of us, but that you would give your life for us, Lord, that you would achieve a victory that we can never achieve ourselves. And so, God, I pray that this week, Lord, we would live in light of your resurrection. God, that we really would have this mind that Jesus has, that we really would believe and live as if the way down is the way up. So, God, would you you do this in our lives as your people? Would your people shine out as a bright, humble light during this season? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, guys, happy Easter to you. I want to leave you with just one verse in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us. He's caused us. I didn't do it. He's caused us to be born again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. May we be people this week who realize that we have been born again because of the resurrection. And may we be people who live with a living hope that endures all seasons of life.